This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It is October 2020, and we're back again for another month. Ryan, how you doing? 2020, the year that never ends. Oh, God, it's 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Feels it's like it's still 2020, though, doesn't it? Does. It? it does. We all thought when that when it turned to 2021, everything would be getting better, and it just feels like we... It's frozen in time. Keep making the same mistakes. Keep oh, we even had the 2020 Olympics. We did. In 2021. Did. But next year, we should at least have the 2022 Olympics. We hope. Turning what the page. Hope if we make it that Finally. far. All right. All right. <laughs> well, hopefully I'm forgiven for my mistakes. Why don't we move on and hop into the articles before someone starts talking about the weather? So our first article is, do patients respond to posted ED wait times? Time series evidence from the implementation of wait times publication system in Hamilton, Canada. And the lead author is Stevenson Strobel. So the question is, do those big billboards displaying ED wait times that are sitting over the hospital actually influence patient visits? And these authors examined ED visits in five emergency departments attached to a single hospital system and two urgent care centers in Ontario, Canada. They compared the number of patients arriving every 15 minutes from before and after a publicly viewable wait time website was made available. For each ED site, the effect of the posted wait time was measured by assessing its association with the total number of patient arrivals in the subsequent hour at the same site and all their sites in Hamilton. Before being publicized, the mean wait times were between 155 minutes and 68 minutes. After the wait times were publicized, the mean wait times were 133 minutes at a high and 64 minutes at a low. So these authors did find a decrease in the number of patient visits with every increase in the posted wait times, but it was really, really small. Essentially, a one-hour increase in wait times reduced the number of patients in the next hour for about 0.0798 patients. And the authors looked at a bunch of different angles and kind of found similar findings that increasing in posted wait times did lead to very small decreases in patient visits. And so I think it's an interesting study, and the results make sense, um, but it's really unclear what percent of patients actually see these posted wait times and how many of them are influenced by this. And then, you know, the case mix of different hospitals, you would think would influence whether these wait times have an effect on the amount of patients to come visit, meaning that how many other healthcare facility options do patients have and what was the acuity of the disease they're presenting for. Either way, it seems like posted wait times on a website has a very small effects on the number of patients that come to the emergency department. And of course, since we're looking at wait time posted online, this doesn't really tell us how the big giant billboard over the hospital displaying wait times actually affects patient visits. Wow. I have a really hard time saying anything about these data because, I mean, you have an exposure and you have an outcome and you don't even know if you've had an exposure <laughs> because this is a posted wait times on a website and you have no idea how many patients may have actually accessed these websites. They probably could if they wanted to like just go back and get server logs and see exactly how many patients access these and have some you know relationship between the exposure variable and the outcome variable. I don't know how you take any of these data and generalize it to any sort of influence of posted wait times on ED arrivals. You can imagine that if you have you know a closed system and you have different wait times at each one and it's readily accessible as a more information literate populace accesses these different wait times, they will naturally load balance themselves to some extent. But these data don't really, don't really give us a whole lot of insight into the magnitude of that effect. Right. You can imagine it's just where you check it online beforehand and it posts your wait time, and then you kind of know when people are looking at it or not. But this, it's really unclear how many people actually saw this. 
Yeah. And I mean, you can imagine that you're also hooking in uh, some ambulance triage to some extent to the number of people in the departmental flow and so on and so forth. But there are interesting ways to manage flow throughout a system and helping patients self-triage is a good idea. Just these data just don't describe it very well. Agreed. All right. Why don't we move on? All right. I will move on to an article called Variation in Rates of Hospital Admission from the Emergency Department Among Medicare Patients at the Regional hospital, and physician levels. Lead author here is Peter Smulovitz, and they're at Harvard Medical School. So we all know the chance a patient gets admitted for the same medical condition is not the same for every doctor at every hospital all across the country. The question is, is it a bigger difference between you and the guy sitting next to you, a bigger difference between this hospital and the next, or is it entirely a regional cultural thing where practice expectations across your area of the country are different than another? This is a retrospective mega data crunch looking at a random sample of fee-for-service claims by Medicare beneficiaries from 2012 to 2015. And when I say a mega data crunch, I mean it. They crunched all the patient details to look at patient-level characteristics and comorbidities, physician characteristics like time and practice and specialty subcertifications, hospital characteristics, and market-level characteristics like per capita income and health insurance prevalence. As you might expect, aggregating and adjusting all these far-flung variables for their multiple comparisons makes things a little bit precarious. So there's not a whole lot of value in discussing the specific numbers derived by these analyses. However, from what shakes out, the authors find the largest contributor to variation admission rates, that is, admission rates independent of two individual patient features, were attributable to hospitals. And within that, certain hospital characteristics accounted for a great deal of variation. Rural versus urban, for-profit versus private, etc. Physicians accounted for the majority of the remaining variation in admission. However, to the scope of their analyses, none of the specific features measured regarding physician characteristics explained the within-physician variation. Market characteristics, as you might have gathered, contributed by far the least to the chance a patient would be admitted. The point these authors make, based on their observations, are looking towards trying to even out this practice variation within the healthcare system, predominantly from position that places with high admission rates are likely providing low-value care. Based on this assumption, they propose future audit measures ought to primarily target hospitals with elevated admission rates, and that looking at physician variation could be a secondary target. Jesse Pines writes a brief editorial regarding the application of admission rate variation to value-based care and ties it all back down to, as you might expect for the U.S. healthcare system, financial incentives. Until the hospital, the physician, and the payer have goals in alignment, truly making a dent in practice variation may be a bit of a lift. Yeah, I think that's bright. And I think this is a Herculean crunch that they did. It's pretty impressive how they handled all this data. And it makes sense. I think most of the variation we see in practice is really based on the culture that we practice in, our ability to get follow-up for our patients, and how certain practices are accepted in the group and in the hospital. And I think that's probably the area where you can make the biggest changes in variation by targeting hospitals rather than individuals. And there's certainly modifiable and unmodifiable hospital features. And if you're going to target hospitals, you have to think about some of the previous work that we've covered on this podcast, where certain hospitals have different case mix and characteristics that make them more or less amenable to certain quality measures. And you can imagine that those same applications exist for implementations of things to affect value-based care. The urban versus rural divide is a big difference. Your private versus public and your case mix is a big difference. So when you're designing these audit measures to try and reduce difference between hospital variation, you have to take that into account. 
I can tell you what probably won't help is another CMS measure. Those, those things are always so effective. <laughs> Did you see there's a new CMS attestation measure that you've like reviewed your EHR for quality concerns? Oh, my God. There's a new, <laughs> new CMS measure every year. They never sunset. It's like de-prescribing. You know, it's like yeah. there's a big, big de-prescribing problem in the elderly. We need a de-quality prescribing, you know, yeah. measure as well. And we wonder why there's so much burnout in mm. emergency medicine. One more thing. All right. Why don't we go on? So our next article is the effect of the COVID pandemic on the economics of U.S. emergency care. The lead author is Jesse Pines. So anecdotally, I'm sure we've all heard a fair deal of the effects COVID has had on the economics of medicine. And, you know, there's been a ton of bad face arguments that doctors are making lots and lots of money treating COVID patients, despite the data demonstrating that that's false. But the perspective of the emergency department has been a little less documented. And obviously, we've all noticed a decrease in patients. And we've had a number of studies reviewed here showing that, yes, certainly in the early part of the pandemic, there was a decrease in patients. And there is some anecdotal evidence to suggest that the supplement revenue have also decreased, but we haven't really seen any data quantifying these effects. And so these authors conducted an observational study of 136 EDs in America from January 2019 to September 2020. They compared three-week units from 2019 to the same three units in 2020 and looked at emergency department visits, patient complexity, revenue, and staffing expenses. And they created a ratio with the 2020 numbers being the numerator and the 2019 numbers in the denominator. They included 40 small hospitals, 56 medium, 16 large hospitals, and 24 freestanding EDs in their analysis. They divided patients into three age groups, less than 18, 18 to 64, and 65 and older. Starting in mid-March 2020, the authors noted a large drop in the number of visits. So 2020 to 2019 visit ratio declined sharply for all three groups. And around mid-April, it hit its bottom at about 0.6 for the two adult groups and 0.3 for the children group. After which, visits started to rise again, but they never reached their previous 2019 numbers. As visits fell, the patient complexity increased, reaching its peak at similar times as the visits hit their trough. And then again, they slowly declined, but similar to the visits, they never actually reached their previous numbers. Admission rates following the similar pattern, rising sharply in the early part of March and April, and then declining but never quite reaching their previous baseline. Most importantly for the question at hand, the revenue fell sharply in March or April of 2020, and again, slowly climbing but never reaching its previous baseline. In addition, physicians and APP work hours fell dramatically over the same period. So I thought this was a really nice study documenting what we've all kind of witnessed firsthand during this pandemic. And, you know, it's limited to a handful of EDs, so we can't say that this is necessarily generalizable to all EDs in the United States. But I think it's safe to say a pattern like this will be similar, and the exact times and numbers will vary depending on the region and when it was hit most by COVID and how badly it was hit by COVID. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty good insight into exactly what happened right during the peak of COVID and subsequent weeks. And then, of course, you know, now it's 2021 and we're almost finished with 2021. And it'd be curious to see exactly what's happened since then. Certainly, this is a big chunk of revenue being cut out of uh, hospitals there. At least our emergency department operations for a lot of hospitals more or less recovered. And it's probably back to, I mean, obviously, these institutions are all cutting expenses to match their revenue. So the long-term viability of these places is probably going to be dependent upon on how they balance revenue and expenses. But a freestanding dent was a thing to me because they had such a huge profit margin to start with. Right. <laughs> it's like a lot of these places, their revenues just barely exceeded expenses. For freestanding emergency departments, their revenues vastly exceeded expenses, at least in their little sample. 
Temple, which I thought was kind of a fun little thing to, that peeked out at the many of the visualizations that they had. Right, which, we, which we've known from previous articles we looked at. Which is not exactly a secret. To, it's an open secret, I suppose. But it was still fun to see. I don't know what's going to happen long term. I mean, we don't know exactly what's happening today. Some of the rehiring anecdotally seems to be occurring. So volumes are probably shifting gradually back up. But like we've talked about on other podcasts, we're probably actually missing about 600,000 comorbid Americans to support some of that ED volume. Right, right. I think I think that's a big thing. And I think we don't really know exactly... Like this told us what happened last year. We don't know where we stand now and we don't know what's going to happen in the future, how long it's going to take us actually to get this pandemic under control. And when we do, if ED volumes will be chained forever as we've shifted some of that to virtual resources, so on and so forth, or if they will return to their previous baselines eventually. And then this doesn't really talk too much about the relationship between RVUs and actual payments, because starting in September or so, a lot of insurance companies were going to stop paying for COVID-related hospitalization costs that they had previously been covering now that COVID is a vaccine-preventable illness. <laughs> so there's potentially some new holes in hospital and emergency department revenue from that as well. Yeah, nonetheless, a really interesting article. Um, first one I've seen that kind of documented it to this granularity, but I, I think a lot more questions to answer. All right, moving right along on, well, on the COVID topic. <laughs> this next one's called Rapid Evaluation of COVID-19 Vaccination in Emergency Departments for Underserved Patients Study. And the lead author here is Robert Rodriguez, and he is at the University of California, San Francisco. This is a somewhat particularly salient study all of a sudden, considering we're talking about it in the midst of the fourth wave of COVID in the United <laughs> States. And a lot of countries are struggling to balance the risks to their healthcare systems with seeming ceiling on the number of people for whom they can coerce into vaccination. This a little cross-sectional study of patients presenting to 15 so-called safety net emergency departments looked at these vaccine-hesitant individuals, both describing their characteristics and their potential acceptance of a COVID-19 vaccination. Impressively, these authors approached 2,575 patients in December 2020 through January 2021, and 90% of them participated. In their population, vaccine hesitancy, as defined by someone who responded no or unsure to regarding the question of whether they would accept a vaccine when available, was 39%. And this population enrolled generally reflects the sort of population expected by safety net hospitals, majority of whom did not have private insurance and majority were non-white. Reasons expressed regarding hesitancy were highest regarding potential side effects and safety, and expressing a need for more information, and then affected by the media stories they've heard, and then a few people who just didn't believe the vaccine would work. Only a few were actually not worried about getting COVID infections, so most were actually worried about getting COVID. Of those who would accept a vaccine, on the other hand, the major barrier identified was that they lacked a primary care physician or a clinic at which they might receive it. However, 95% of those respondents would be amenable to receiving the vaccine in the emergency department, which was a nice and interesting finding. But now it's October, and now we're a bit on the other side of this problem, <laughs> now that vaccines are widely available. And you'd imagine that uh, you know some of these things like side effects and safety are well described. There's plenty more information, although a lot of it is misinformation. So it's a little bit unclear exactly how well these thoughts and ideas might have aged, but there's still probably some granules of truth involved. Certainly, access to vaccinations ought to be much simpler these days, but EDs may yet still have a role to play in the few patients left who might be swayed either way, and it wouldn't hurt to ask. 
I would certainly say New Zealand is in the position, sort of like Europe and other countries trying to catch up, where we're trying to eke out that last few percentage points for vaccination to get into the high 80% to 90% for vaccination. And we're definitely looking at asking and offering vaccinations and everything from the emergency department to the Kentucky Fried Chicken drive through line. <laughs> no, we really are. <laughs> Whatever works, right? Kentucky Fried Chicken is a huge thing down here. It's very strange. <laughs> I think that's the most important part of this article. It was so early into when vaccines had just been approved and just come through that I think this speaks to a much different population of vaccine hesitancy than it does now, right? When they're so easily accessible and what you're seeing now is an entirely different population. And it looked to me that most of this hesitancy in this group was mostly access, right? Almost all of them agreed that they would get the vaccine if it was offered to them. <laughs> and so it mostly seemed like we're just hearing about this now. We don't really know much about it. Once you've told me about it, yeah, if you offer to me, I'm, I'll happy get it. Whereas it doesn't really tell us what's going on now in America and how we reach those pockets of unvaccinated people at this point. But probably vaccine mandates are probably going to be the most effective way, though we don't have data on that yet. Well, I mean, certainly that's pretty much what they did in Europe, is that they restored the I mean, vaccine passports for pretty much everything. They restored freedoms for people who were vaccinated. And eventually, I think most of the people in Europe got around to getting their vaccines, right. at least in the highly vaccinated countries like Spain, Portugal, Denmark, those sorts of places. Right. Yeah. yeah, certainly. It's certainly an interesting situation. Yeah. But yes, I don't know how much these data are actually applicable to the current uh, current situation in the United States, although other countries, it might still be, you know, have a role in informing what they're how they're approaching vaccination yeah. and how they're approaching getting that initial way of going. Yeah, definitely. All right, moving on to a cardiology topic. So our next article is electrocardiographic diagnosis of acute coronary occlusion, myocardial infarction, and ventricular pace rhythm using the modified scarbosic criteria. And the lead author is Kenneth Dodd. So ventricular pace rhythms make identifying cardiac ischemia difficult on an EKG, and traditionally it has been recommended to use the Scarbosa criteria to help identify patients requiring emergent coronary catheterization. And for those of you unfamiliar with the Scarbosa criteria, it's essentially a way of looking at a paced EKG and looking for concordant ST elevation or concordant ST depression, meaning your ST segment is going in the same direction as your S wave rather than inverse which you should typically see in the pace rhythm, or proportionally excessive discordant ST elevation, meaning the discordance that you typically see is there, but the ST elevation is out of proportion then to what you typically see in a pace rhythm. The problem with the original Scarbosa criteria is that the sensitivity has been called into question due to that it uses an absolute measurement rather than a relative measurement when looking at that excessive discordance. They use greater than five millimeters and the argument is unless you actually look at the discordance in proportion to the S wave, you will miss a number of patients who have less than five millimeters, but their S wave is really small. And so you should be able to pick it up if you use a relative discordance rather than an absolute one. And so these authors suggested a modified criteria, which had been derived in a previous study that essentially looks fairly similar to the original Scarbosa criteria, only looks at a relative discordance rather than an absolute. And they wanted to validate this modified version and compare it to the original Scarbosa criteria and see which one performed better in a population. So they conducted a retrospective case control study examining adult patients with ventricular pace rhythm and symptoms of acute coronary syndrome who presented to 16 cardiac referral centers between 2008 and 2018. 
All subjects were greater than 18 years old and required to have undergone emergent cardiac catheterization. Subjects were divided into two groups, into patients with acute myocardial infarction or no acute myocardial infarction, as per a cardiologist reviewing the cath images blinded to EKG findings. The authors also included a non-angio, non-MI group, who did not actually ever go to the cath lab, but were ruled out using cardiac biomarkers. The clinicians interpreting the EKGs were blinded to clinical outcomes of the patients. So overall, the authors included 59 subjects with an acute myocardial infarction, 90 patients in the no acute myocardial infarction who went to catheterization, and an additional 120 patients who were ruled out for acute myocardial infarction via cardiobiomarkers. The original Scarbosa criteria didn't perform so good, with a sensitivity of 56% and a specificity of 90%. The modified Scarbosa criteria fared a bit better, sensitivity of 81% and a specificity of 84%. They then added an additional rule to their modified group, and they did this prospectively. This wasn't after the fact, so that does make it stronger, where they looked at concordant ST depression in leads V1 through V6, in addition to your originally three rules. And they found that the sensitivity increased slightly and the specificity decreased slightly to 86% and 83%. So really not much difference. So all in all, I think this was a really well done case control studies. The authors went to pretty extreme measures to limit the bias this type of study introduces into their results. We'd all would have liked to have this being a prospective study validating this tool, but given the patient population they're studying, I think it's going to be pretty hard to get that done. So I think for now, this is fairly good data. It's probably the best data we're going to have for a while. And it certainly suggests that using the modified criteria is probably better than the, the original Scarbosa criteria. It's not perfect, but better. No, I mean, I think this is a really cool article. And they were very rigorous in exactly what they found as far as you know, the occlusions on taking the ECG and then actually correlating with angiographic occlusions to try to measure the performance of these different criteria on the different types of myocardial infarctions that you might encounter in the emergency department. So I thought that was really interesting. Certainly, this is, it's not a very big study, but it may be the largest study that you're going to get trying to validate the modified Scarbosa criteria until you get a big sort of retrospective confirmation of sorts. So I think if I were going to choose a new thing to adopt from this podcast, I'd probably be adopting the modified Scarbosa criteria as they describe it. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think we are unlikely to get better data from this for a while, and, and this certainly suggests that it's a far better marker of the patient's need to go to the cath lab than the original criteria. Yeah, and it has face validity. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, an absolute thing on an ECG whose voltages and S-wave is going to be totally patient-dependent, and it's going to be, I think, a relative thing is better than an absolute measurement, for sure. Yeah, exactly. All right, moving right along to our final article this month, neither cardiology nor COVID-related. The accuracy of four frequently used frailty instruments for the prediction of adverse health outcomes among older adults at two Dutch emergency departments. The findings of the Amsterdam study. The lead author is Carmen S. Van Dam, and the institution, as you might have guessed, is the Amsterdam University Medical Center. International guidelines recommend screening for frailty in older adults presenting to the emergency department. While some functional decline cannot be prevented, it is theoretically possible to improve safety and quality of life and likewise minimize avoidable subsequent hospitalization and institutionalization. However, the question of how to screen remains. These Dutch authors tested four different frailty screens against each other. The Acutely Presenting Older Adult Patient Screening Program, the 
International Resident Assessment Instrument Emergency Department Screener, also known as InterRI, the identification of seniors at risk hospitalized patients, the ISAR-HP, and the Safety Management System, VMS. Their primary outcome was at least one adverse outcome at three months, and this is a composite measure of mortality, institutionalization, or decline in functional status. They screened 889 patients for whom they measured subsequent emergency department outcomes at those one, three, and six months. Of these, about a third met this primary composite outcome, and actually, the numbers were almost identical of who had met composite outcome at each time point. However, interestingly, at one month, the composite outcome was primarily driven by functional decline. At three months, it was kind of balanced between decline and institutionalization. And then at six months, mortality was a major contributor to this composite outcome. It's a very uplifting result. Functional decline and institutionalization. This really feels uh, like my life. Yeah, once once you come to the emergency department as a frail elderly adult, it, uh, it, it it's decline, institutionalization, and mortality, unfortunately, pretty quickly, huh? But back to the article. Unfortunately, the editor's capsule summary probably says all we need to say here. These four geriatric frailty screening instruments are too inaccurate for reliable clinical use. Positive hood likelihood ratios for each of the instruments were in the range of 1.5 to 4, while negative likelihood ratios were in the range of 0.4 to 0.9. If you recall, the generally accepted threshold for usable prediction instruments, the pause is about 10 for positive likelihood ratio and 0.1 for negative likelihood ratio. None of these approach that level of utility. So, a fertile area for future research. Might I suggest a machine learning black box? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, there was always an opportunity to discuss machine learning. There always. I mean, maybe, although a lot of things, are, you know, there's so much that contributes to frailty and institutionalization and functional decline. Yeah. I don't know how you can measure it in structured data or collect all the features you need for a machine learning sorts of thing. And they don't compare these to Gestalt either. So, does you know, can, a lot of people, you can just look at a person and say, oh, Right, they're they're on the way down, um, and I think they're yeah, one. They're trying to capture it in these moments, you know, and it's a continuity, and it, it's too complex a question to try to create a decision rule that's going to create an ideal sensitivity or specificity. I think you could create a rule that puts you into different risk categories, right? Like, what is your risk of decline? You know, in the whole group, it's about what thirty percent, right? And mm-hmm. so, can you stratify people into a fifty percent group and a twenty percent group and a ten percent group? but it maybe helps you guide what kind of patients need more follow-up and more help and more care going forward. But I don't think you'll ever build a rule that's going to create enough sensitivity or specificity to use in a definitive clinical manner. Well, I think if you build something that's super specific, it's not going to be any better than clinical judgment because it's going to narrow it down to such a tiny cohort that you're just like looking at somebody that's obviously frail and you're going to miss all the other people who actually do have this. So, so that's that, that uh, these were mostly insensitive, although some of them specificity was limited as well, but the sensitivity was the bigger problem. Right. So it's clearly a difficult clinical problem to capture in a single point in time at the emergency department triage, right. basically when you're right. screening for frailty. Right. And you're never going to find a rule that's going to rule out frailty or rule out bad outcomes in, in elderly <laughs> rule people. Out frailty. But I, I like you can imagine a, a rule like, you know, something like a Wells rule, right? That it just gets you at different risk stratifications for bad outcomes, like 2%, 12%, 30%, right? Mm-hmm. None of those are good enough perfectly, right? But they put you somewhere where you can make different decisions depending on the patient, right? And Potentially. I think maybe that's the way to go. 
I mean, if once you design it, you have to figure out how you're going to respond and what interventions in right. the different cohorts, exactly. and then you have to actually right. do an implementation sort of a study, and then right. see if it actually helps and works. At least we're not going to use any of these four frailty screening tools. So done with that. That's the takeaway from this journal article. We always get back to like, yeah, once you've identified something, do we have an outcome that actually helps, right? So far, we haven't invented anything that fixes aging, unfortunately. Yeah. I think having some insight into patients' courses from the emergency department is helpful. And unfortunately, these four tools haven't added much insight. Into right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for another month. As always, thank you all for listening. This was the October Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. So until next month, this was Rory Fiegel and Ryan Radecki. So long. Bye.